millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and once more I'm joined by Peter Hart. Today, Hello. Pete, it's a sad day. Today, we have a lot of sad days. <laughs> Today is the last in our series on Laugh or Cry, uh, which is the imaginative name that we chose for our book. Oh, have they all bought it yet, do you think? No, I don't think so, Pete, but it's a good way of supporting the podcast. And today it's entitled Over the Top. Now, a lot of our podcasts are over the top. <laughs> I think we should have one called Near the Knuckle. Yes. A compliment, you know. Yeah. Um, now, uh, l- let me let me put you in the scene. Uh, we could, this is about the going on the offensive. And the British Army is on the offensive pretty solidly from uh, 1915 uh, right through to uh, the end of 1917. And you've got to remember, this is alongside their French allies. And they're, why are they fighting? Why, Gary? Why? Why are they on the offensive? Why? Well, they're fighting to clear the Germans out of France and Belgium. You can't remain on the defensive the whole time if you want to evict the invaders. That's right. Now, so the battles. Now let's look at the battles. Let's let's name check them, Gary. Uh, Neuve Chapelle, Ibers Ridge, Festubert, Luce, Fromelles, Somme, Arras, Third Eaps. That's that's uh, a litany of pain and suffering, isn't it? Really. It is. And this is what Lance Corporal Jim Davis of the 12th Royal Fusiliers says. Now, this just happened to remember because I interviewed this. Uh, this was about Luce. The first thing I saw in the morning were wounded jocks coming down. Motor ambulances to start with, then horse ambulances, and then walking wounded. I never saw so many wounded jocks. One of the chaps said, is it always like this up here? And a jock said, only on Saturdays. It's a fabulous quote, isn't it? Now, uh, the Germans had their own offensive, that's Second Eps and Verdun, I'd say, wouldn't you? Uh, but otherwise, they took a, a defensive uh, stance, which, uh, which we, you know, that never stops them from doing what? What have we talked about time and time again so that the listeners absolutely pissed off and suffering? I think you're referring to uh, the murderous counterattacks, yeah. which they'd do even if a single trench was lost. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and we pay tribute to the French, of course, who are doing all a lot of the heavy lifting in fifteen. Uh, so. Yeah, the start of any great offensive couldn't be hidden from the other side, 
Both sides knew what was coming, but that didn't stop them engaging in a bit of banter. A bit um, of banter, Gary. Is that yeah, what we do? I, I mean, there's nothing funny about the uh, the slaughter that faced them, but they had to laugh. What else could they do? And this is one of our favourites. This is Captain Charles May of the 22nd Manchester Regiment. This concentrated effort of our great nation put forward uh, to the end of destroying our foe. The greatest battle in the world is on the eve of breaking. Please, God, it may terminate successfully for us. Fritz, I think, knows about it. At any rate, a day or two ago, he put the following notice on his wire opposite the 4th Division. When your bombardment starts, we're going to bugger off back five miles. Kitchener is buggered. Asquith is buggered. You're buggered. We're buggered. Let's all bugger off home. It is vulgar, as his humour invariably is, but the sentiments are so eminently those of Tommy Atkins that it must certainly have been a man with a good knowledge of England and the English who wrote the message. Actually, I, I disagree, actually, because the German sense of humour is very similar to the British one. Fixated is, is on the toilet, for the most part. Speaking of which, men couldn't help but be nervous, but they tried to swallow their fears as best they could. At least officers usually had the chance of a decent last breakfast. You're saying they were fed better than the men? I'm not sure about that, Gary, but this is Captain John Milne of the 1st 4th Leicestershire Regiment. The just before the battle mother feeling is a little uncomfortable and bewildering. There you sit in a cosy farmhouse with two or three other fellows, feeling as fit as a fiddle and eating an enormous breakfast of bacon and eggs and bread and jam. The sun pours in at the windows. The birds are twittering to each other. Madame stands by the Dutch stove, sucking her teeth and dispensing café au lait. The batmen are packing the valises. Nothing unusual is happening but the rumble of gunfire in the distance and yet you have a disconcerting thought at the back of your brain that something nasty may befall during the next 24 hours and that this may be the last breakfast some of you sitting there will eat. Yes, it certainly is a little uncomfortable but anyway it does not last long and the bacon and eggs are very good. Nothing like a full stomach. And after all, what on earth did you come out for it if it was not to fight? You, uh, you've got a full stomach, Gary. Do you want to fight? <laughs> Sorry. Now, the final countdown, never more aptly named, was a matter of rising tension. Often, they could guess what was to come. They'd all seen it all before and recognised the grim mathematics of war. And uh, rather aptly, you're going to tell us what Lieutenant Colonel Herbert Hart of the 1st Wellington Regiment says. The usual proportion of casualties is 30 to 40%, which would mean in our case 300 to 400, of which one-fourth will probably be killed outright. Some units get off lighter, but on the other hand, many catch it worse. And I know of two battalions which entered, entered this battle on different occasions and were not seen again. The whole force was extinguished. Bit of exaggeration, but I know what he means. However, what is to be will be. And I think we're all fatalists long before this. It is wonderful how cheerful men are under these, such circumstances. Always hoping for the best, determined to do well, and throughout all ranks a feeling that it would be worthwhile getting a reasonable wound for the sake of the change and relief from fighting that it would bring. That's the blighty wound. That's the wound. blighty wound. 
And, and I think he rightly recognises, I mean, even officers, even, well, what do I mean even officers? They're just like anybody else, aren't they? Uh, everybody has got a little bit of a hope they get a nice wound in the arm, flesh wound. Now, officers hoped that their courage would hold and that the men would follow them. And uh, they pondered on the ferocity of the German response when the whistles blew. And this is Major Douglas Wimberley of the 232nd Machine Gun Company. Why have I heard that name before? Because I've said it before. And he says this. I shall never forget the last half hour before zero. It was perfectly quiet and the November dawn had a sharp nip of cold to herald its coming. The men lay about the parapet of the trench through which the last of the assaulting troops had passed sipping their warming tea, cracking quiet jokes which the soldier indulges in at all times except when very tired. We officers sat in a bunch and one thought was uppermost in all our minds. Would it be a walkover as intelligence had promised or had this ghastly stillness a more significant meaning and would Zero be ushered in by the usual heavy counter-barrage and the crack, crack, crack of the German maxims? Now, uh, the men... (laughs) ambivalent about they get exhortations and encouragement from young subalterns uh who they i mean everybody must have thought they were wet behind that you know what a subaltern is a second lieutenant they've just come out they're wet behind the ears aren't they what do they want well they wanted leadership when the moment came but they could do without some of the blather and this is an example from lance corporal william andrews of the first fourth black watch so a miserable scot as uh as we would say normally if we were offending half our Scottish comrades. And he says this, I, (laughs) we were a little scornful of new officers with their eagerness to advance. There was a youngster who, when our trench was being assaulted by whiz-bangs, walked white-faced among us and said, Now, boys, play up and play the game. An old NCO said, Excuse me, sir, this isn't a cricket match, it's bloody war. Black watch. That was uh, someone who'd been posted in from Lancashire. Now, often the men themselves tried to lighten the mood, taking their minds off the horrors to come. Sometimes it was talking as much rubbish as the subalterns, but it was their rubbish. And you're going to tell us what Captain John Milne of the 1st, 4th Leicestershire Regiment. Or to recommend that it's a history of the 1st. These come from a book, A History of the 1st, 4th. And it's it's rare that you get so many humorous quotes in one book, isn't it? Uh, uh, Certainly in our case. <laughs> and this is what Captain John Milne said. From Hooge came sounds of heavy bombardment, intense rifle and machine gun fire, and the explosion of trench mortars and bombs. The woods were lit up by very lights and the red glare of liquid fire. Hooge looked a veritable inferno, and at any moment B Company might be ordered into this maelstrom of fruitfulness. As a natural result, B Company was pensive, wondering what it would be like with the same uncomfortable expectancy one feels in a dentist's waiting room. At this moment, Joe took the situation in hand. We're going over the top tonight, boys, he grinned. Give your names to me, all those wanting German helmets, German buttons and German bayonets. I'll see you get them. Just give your names to me and say what you want, any kind of souvenir you fancy and so on and so forth, ad lib. Joe's beady eyes twinkled, his eyebrows arched, his mouth assumed all manner of ribald contortions. Joe had never been more amusing. 
B Company rocked with mirth. The dentist's waiting room became the gallery of a music hall. The low comedian had arrived. His salary was not a pound a week, but if ever a man earned a thousand a minute, Joe did then. I think that's a wonderful story. And and, and, and that's one of the laugh or cry ones, isn't it? Because it's amusing, but actually they, they, they'd get shot to bits in a minute. It's quite sad, yeah. The better officers realise that the men's... They, they need cheering up, not not sort of vainglorious exhortations, do they? Um, and jokes, jokes, any old joke, any joke, anything to take their minds off what? Well, largely the German 5.9-inch shells and machine guns. And this is what Captain Alexander Stewart... Can you give me all the Scots, are you? Cameronian Scottish rifles. Aye. I started off again to go down the line and pass the time of day with all I came across. This meant sitting in endless shell holes and cracking foolish jokes with the men. Mind you, wake up when the barrage starts. I hope you're all being at sharp. And so on. As zero time drew near, I saw that my revolver was loaded. A rifle also fully loaded with one in the breech and bayonet fixed slung over my shoulder, my gas mask in the alert position under my chin and my coat collar turned up. And last... But by no means least, having seen that my pipe was going properly. <laughs> Sorry. I found the men that were coming with me all ready and anxious in a way to be over the top and over the suspense of waiting for zero. I told them that immediately the first shot of the barrage was heard, they were to follow me as we must hurry to come up with the rest of the company. I do not think that any of us were, all, were at all windy but the last few moments before an attack when one rather expects to be killed or wounded, are somewhat tense. As usual, I suppose I made damn silly jokes, generally in very questionable taste. Sort of questionable taste might be a sort of watchword for our whole podcast. Yeah, somewhat tense. That's that's an understatement, don't you think? It certainly is. Uh, And I think the last word, I think, should lie with an insouciant cockney, much like yourself. who, who just is talking about just that period before going over the top. This is Private Henry Mason of the 23rd London uh, Regiment. An attack was to be made by a battalion at Givenchy in 1915. The Germans must have learned of the intention. For two hours before it was due to begin, they sent up a strong barrage causing many casualties. Letters and cards, which might be their last, were being sent home by our men. And a cockney at the other end of our dugout shouted to his mate, Harry, how do you spell delightful? That, I couldn't help, in the background you may even have heard sort of snigger, because I knew what was coming. I think that's an unbelievably great quote. And, and again, quite sad in some ways, because he might have been killed ten minutes, five minutes later. Anyway, um, so uh, um, the barrage... Why, why is the barrage important, the British barrage, as opposed to the German counter-barrage? Well, the British barrage, on which their hopes of surviving the day generally rested, was a stupendous thing by the last years of the war. Certainly, it knocked Dudley Menno Lissenberg off his perch and into a slough of despond. Gary, you're very poetic these days. And this is as what... As opposed to sloughing Berkshire. <laughs> this is what... Uh, well, he's a singer. Private Dudley Mess... Uh, Gunner. Gunner. Dudley Mess... Uh, Menow Lissenberg. 97th Battery, 147th Brigade, Royal Field Artillery. A fine body of men. And he says this. It was in the early morning and a miserably wet day. I was sitting on the pole in the lavatory over a deep and narrow trench 
with a sandbagged roof supported by spars of timber overhead situated at the end of a long communication trench running parallel to and 20 yards to the rear of the line of guns. I, of course, knew the barrage was to commence that day, but with other personal matters on my mind, I sat on the pole in contemplation and alone. The silence was indeed eerie. Suddenly, as if struck by an earthquake, the ground shook. The roof fell in, as, and the roof fell in as hundreds of guns, guns opened fire simultaneously. I extricated myself from the debris. Seeing blood on the shoulder of my jacket from a wound somewhere on my head, which was numbed, I panicked for a moment. I heard the lads at the guns lustily cheering and hurried to the command post, hoisting my slacks. <laughs> A while. Here I found Gunner Roach seated at the telephone. What happened to you? he inquired as he looked at my blanched face and bleeding head. Is it a blighty? <laughs> I asked. Sorry. <laughs> In your own time. Oh, God. I've just, it just made me. In. No, he replied as he examined the wound. It's only a scratch on the lobe of your ear. Sorry, I didn't. I must confess, I was disappointed but relieved. Mm. Magnificent reading, that I thought. Fantastic. Now, coincidentally, laugh or cry was almost called and then the pole broke, wasn't it? It was. I think that's going to be the name of the Gallipoli volume. Now, at this point, the men went over the top. The German shells often crashed down into no man's land, creating a deadly wall it seemed impossible to penetrate. And this is Private Ernie Rhodes of the 21st Manchester Regiment. I think you're allowed a generic norm there, are you? Aye. Good God, yes, you were nervous, because you expected at any moment one would be for you. Well, you prayed to God, definitely. If a man tells you he hasn't, then I think he tells lies. I did. I was always a little bit religious, but that was the time when you really prayed hard to your maker to save you. When you got in a real bad barrage, normally you never bothered. Once it had lifted, you were back to your old self again. That fear didn't stay with you. Now, heavy rifle and machine gun fire that they face in no man's land, that's never funny, is it? Uh, but the lucky ones uh, reached the German front line. And this is what signaller Sidney Fuller, 8th Suffolk Regiment, said. The enemy's built-up trenches were almost obliterated by the heavy fire of our guns. Trunks of trees were lying across them anyhow, and the whole of the ground had been pulverised by shells. One badly wounded German lay writhing in agony on the ground near where we stopped. He was evidently past help. One of the signers, who'd managed to get a little more than his share of the rum issue, was desirous of shooting the dying German. Bastard, he called him, but we put a stop to that business. I saw two bullets strike the wounded German immediately afterwards and he ceased to move. So evidently someone had no scruples about it. That's terrible. Possibly, but not probably, someone shot him to put him out of his misery. However, there were many men who shot down any of the enemy, regardless of circumstances, wounded or prisoners. It made no difference. And it was noticeable that the men who did that sort of thing were loudest in condemning the German atrocities. Two wrongs evidently made a right with them. And again, there's no sense of humour about that. That's a pretty terrible quote. Uh, but it's also understandable and, and to some extent human nature. Now, often senior battalion officers were not very far behind the men and they needed to maintain some semblance of command uh, and control in chaotic circumstances. And this is Lieutenant Colonel Bernard Pryor of the 9th Norfolk Regiment. 
Here I found a number of C Company who were evidently not quite sure what their next action was, for I heard one man say, Well, what do we do now? I shouted out, Now, my lads, you'll take the ruddy village, at which they laughed and clambered out of the trench with me. And here we'll have just a short break, I think. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. After September 1916, the infantry often had the support of tanks. These lumbering beasts brought a new dimension to warfare. It was a noisy, smelly, cramped environment. Are you a tank? (laughs) Partially. And this is Captain Mark Dillon of B Battalion of the Tank Corps. Having insulted each other, we'll move on. Mark Dillon was a cracking bloke. He lived just outside Durham. It had a driver who worked the pedals and accelerator, and so, and an officer, so on, and an officer who sat beside him and worked the brakes. Then there were two men at the back, one on each side of the centre portion of the tank, because on each side there was a gearing, which was called a secondary gearing. So you could drive, if you like, with one side of the tank in top gear and the other in second gear. The result would be, of course, that the tracks would move unevenly and the tank would swing uh, in its movement, and that was the chief method of turning. You had to put the clutch out and get the man at the back to put the appropriate gear in. It was a very tricky business. There, there were two other men on either side, a man with a six-pounder gun and the other with a machine gun. So there were eight men in the tank altogether. 
there wasn't much room for dancing. I think that's the only funny part of that quote. There wasn't much room for dancing. And if you've seen some of the tanks, uh, uh, some people go to, what's the name of that museum you were talking about? It's going to see it. Uh, Bovington. Bovington, yeah. You, there you can see uh, uh, what the, how crow- cramped the tanks were there. All tanks are cramped, aren't they? Yeah. Now, it's interesting he's talking about how they turn them because obviously early on you see very early pictures of tanks with those wheels and things Steering at the back. Yeah. back yeah. Then they realise you didn't need them. Now, the infantrymen, they were ambivalent towards tanks. They welcomed the support when held up by German barbed wire or strong points. After all, who wouldn't? But they were also considered that the tanks attracted shell fire and generally tried to keep their distance. Hmm. Now, there are exceptions to this general rule, uh, uh, as this uh, probably apocryphal story might indicate. Uh, uh, when we say the story is possibly apocryphal, we just mean it's a bit too good to be true, probably. But on the other hand, it does suit the book and it suits the podcast, doesn't it? Here are we you go. apocryphal? Uh, I had, yeah, but that cream cleared it up. Thanks for recommending it. And this is Bombardier Ambrose Belton of B Battery of the Honourable Artillery Company. Surprise, it's you. A German field gun was trying to hit one of our tanks, the fire being directed, no doubt, by an observation balloon. On the top of the tank was a Cockney infantryman getting a free ride and seemingly quite unconcerned at Jerry's attempts to score a direct hit on the tank. As the tank was passing our guns, a shrapnel shell burst just behind it and above it. We expected to see the Cockney passenger roll off dead. All he did, however, was to put his hand to his mouth and shout to those inside the tank, Oi, conductor, any room inside? It's raining. Now, during an attack, this is the other side of life. There's tragic incidents that they're just all over the place. And we've, we've, funnily enough, we've referenced this one before in our podcast on, was it loose? I think it was. Uh, uh, who tells this story? Well, this is Robert Graves, and he tells what is quite a poignant story of a, a, an attack. And he gives an indication of how the men coped. And this is Lieutenant Robert Graves of the Second Royal Welsh Fusiliers. My mouth was dry and my eyes out of focus and my legs quaking under me. I found a water bottle full of rum and drank about half a pint. It it quieted me and my head remained clear. Samson, that's this is uh, Captain Samson, Samson, Mm. lay groaning about 20 yards beyond the front trench. Several attempts were made to rescue him. He had been very badly hit. Three men got killed in these attempts, two officers and two men wounded. In the end, my own orderly managed to crawl out to him. Samson waved him back, saying that he was riddled through and not worth rescuing. He sent his apologies to the company for making such a noise. We waited a couple of hours for the order to charge. The men were silent and depressed. Only Sergeant Townsend was making feeble, bitter jokes about about the good old British army muddling through and how you thank God we still had a navy. And as we mentioned in the previous uh, podcast, I visited uh, Captain Sampson's grave. You've got a photo of him, yeah. I have, yeah. Oh, sorry, of the gravestone. Now, once the killing had stopped, prisoners were thoroughly searched, often not so much for weapons, although that was an obvious consideration, but also for valuables and souvenirs. And this is 2nd Lieutenant Arthur Hemsley of the 12th East Surrey Regiment. We reached the lip of this enormous crater and lying around were many German bodies. As we went a bit further along, they began to come out from deep dugouts and throw their stick bombs. I got near enough to the entrance of the dugout to call down to them in German to surrender and they came up, hands up, quite calmly. 
My little corporal was standing there ushering them out and helping himself to their watches and other equipment on the basis that somebody would get it and it might as well be him. He was a real Bermondsey boy. Now, what's the most coveted souvenir, do you think? Uh, the pickle halb helmet, certainly earlier in the war. Um, and a chance to gain one of these wasn't usually to be missed. And this is Private Albert Conn of the 8th Devonshire Regiment. The dead had fallen in many strange, grotesque postures, some on their hands and knees as if they were praying. I did have a bit of a scrounge round, though. I thought I might get, I might get one of those belts with got mittens, God is with us, uh, on it. Or perhaps one of those Prussian helmets. I did come across one bloke, but when I lifted his helmet, half the top of his nut was in it. It was full of brains, like mincemeat. I'm not very squeamish, but I didn't fancy scraping that out. That's horrible. (laughs) Once the dugouts were cleared, these were a promising area for a diligent search. Yeah, this is Private Albert Andrews, 19th Manchester Regiment again. Two or three of us went down in a fine German dugout. There were cigars, tinned food and German helmets. We all took a helmet, cigars and tobacco coming out with these German helmets on. We ran straight into our captain. Yes, he said, you all look very nice, but get some fucking digging done. Yeah, well, this is the funny enough to make a military point. That's to get it ready, because what's going to happen? A German counterattack. So you need to turn the trench round. You can't be pissing about wearing helmets and smoking cigars. Although it would be fun. Yeah, would be fun. Now, if the advance was successful, then the field guns would move forward. Uh, uh, now that, that that's across broken ground, isn't it? it must what, what must that have been like? Well, it could be back-breaking physical labour, and the acerbic Neil Fraser Tytler... He's one of your favourites. ...happened upon a ready solution, although it was strictly against the rules of war. And this is Major Neil uh, Fraser Tytler of A Battery, 150th Brigade... Uh, uh, Royal Field Artillery. We were due to cease firing and advance at 0620. So, and so at that hour, the backs of the gun pits having been previously pulled down, we started the heavy labour of manhandling the guns out of their pits. Luckily, at that moment, a Highlander came down the track, escorting 25 prisoners. I called to him to go into the cookhouse and have uh, some tea uh, to hand over his rifle and the prisoners to my tender mercies. The Huns were sending over some 8-inch shells, and when I ordered the prisoners to man the drag ropes, that's for the guns, they uh, started to argue that they ought not to be made to do it. But the argument only lasted uh, 30 seconds. The well-known sound of a rifle bolt going to full cock and a few well-chosen words of abuse learnt on a Pomeranian barrack square quickly got them to work. And meanwhile, our gunners were safely under cover and able to have breakfast. Now, that is against the rules of war, because it's under fire, but uh, you can also understand it. Once taken back behind the front lines, prisoners were generally well treated. However, David Rory, that's Major David Rory, tells an amusing story of how some German officers' complaints were subtly diffused. Now, you're going to be Major Dave Rory. Uh, He's a 1st, 2nd Highlands Field Ambulance, RAMC. Yes, our AMC is the part I'm concentrating on. On the evening of the uh, 14th, a batch of some half-dozen Bosch officers was temporarily left in our charge until an APM's guard, I think that's the Assistant Provost Marshal's guard, uh, was available to remove them back. Uh, We stuck them under a guard of our own in the much-battered part of our building which faced the enemy lines. Shortly afterwards... 
I got a message asking for an interview. On entering their quarters, there was much heel-clicking and saluting, and a fat, walrus-faced fellow, who spoke assemblable English, asked, Are you aware, sir, that we are German officers? I murmured politely that the fact was obvious. Are you aware, sir, that this room is not suitable accommodation for German officers? If you'd sent word you were coming, we'd have had it repaired. The effect was magical. Walworth's face beamed and translated the remark to his brethren, who all saluted with pleased smiles, while their interpreter observed in the most amiable manner, Do not further apologise. I replied that I would not, and looking in later, found them in very audible enjoyment of some liquid nourishment from the soup kitchen. The incident was happily closed. That's, that's, and that's gentle humour, but I, I like the idea. Oh, we'd have, had, we'd have had it repaired for you if we'd known you were coming. But even if they were successful, the attacking troops usually faced the German counterattack, as we've said time have and time again. Have we mentioned that ever? I'm not sure we have, Gary. In the very near future. The British often boasted of their prowess with the cold steel, but the prospect of imminent close quarters fighting tested that confidence to the limit. And this is Private Pat Kennedy of the 18th Manchester Regiment. Aye, when you saw the Germans coming to you with fixed bayonets, the old sergeant, he'd been out since Mons, he said, By God, Pat, if they get any nearer, we'll have to go and meet them with bayonet. I thought, right, I've got a round in my breech, just, just in case I miss him with bayonet. I could shoot him. <laughs> just pull the trigger, catch him that way. But they got very near on top of us, a few feet away from us, and they were coming full pelt, yelling at the top of their voices. It's a nasty feeling to think of these big Germans, all hand-picked men. They were regular troops, done years and years of conscript service. And you can imagine him just thinking, uh, but that's some propaganda in there, because the Germans wouldn't have been regulars about that stage. Well, that's 1916, that quotes from the first day of the Somme. It wouldn't have been. But I don't think during a counterattack you would say to a general, are you regular? Oh, well, you mean bowel movements? Bowel right? movements, yeah. <laughs> Very important. After the battle had finished, what was left was a scene of true devastation. Trees smashed to matchwood, buildings reduced to brick dust, debris everywhere, and amidst all of that, this gem. And this is Second Lieutenant Eric Bird of the 144th Machine Gun Company. Even in that hell of destruction, the British sense of humour was not wholly absent. In the middle of the village street lay a huge, unexploded 15-inch shell, weighing about a tonne. Some humorist had risked his life to linger and chalk on it, not to be taken away. Uh, that's a very good one. I don't think we've particularly laughed at that before, have we? No, no. But there's also a black humour, and 2nd Lieutenant Harold Mellersh of the 2nd East Lancashire Regiment says this. Yeah, this is an important part of what we tried to reflect in the book, the, the black darkness of it all. We dismounted and walked up the road to what had been the village of Freikorps. No wall seemed left more than a man high, and on each side was mud and shell holes and the woodwork thrown askew of once well-built trenches. Our guide asked the way of one of these... Oh, uh, d d d d of what? Yeah, so he's obviously asking it. Turn right by the dead major, he was told. We went on and the road became narrower and less distinguishable as a road. Dead men began to appear and they seemed to be all British and their faces looked pale green. Why, I wondered, gas or the effect of fumes. Then we came to the dead major. 
He lay with his eyes open, and they were very blue, and his arm was flung out, and on it showed plainly the crown and three stripes on his sleeve. He was making a most easily recognisable signpost, which is terrible, you know. And I remember, remember that quote we had in the Somme podcast about, you turn left at the second bad smell. (laughs) When weeks or months later the French civilians were able to return to their homes, they often had little or nothing to return to. And this is as described by Lieutenant John Hills of the 5th Leicestershire Regiment. The French were immensely pleased at regaining part of their lost territory, though it was a pathetic sight to see some of the old people coming to look at the piles of bricks which had once been their homes. Two ladies came to Gomacourt with a key, little thinking that so far from finding a lock, they would not even find a door or a doorway. There was not even a brick wall more than two feet high. Now, so we've met, That's quite we've, sad, actually. It is sad. I, I, just about it... The, the desolation. Uh, and, uh. Now, one thing we haven't mentioned is the wounded. Wounded, wounded. Uh, wounds. Um, yeah, be. ranged in severity, but the lightly wounded were generally regarded with some envy as despite the obvious pain, they had the much-craved blighty wound. We've mentioned that, which we, we mentioned earlier. So this is Gunnar Ivor Hansen of the 311th Royal Field Artillery. He says this. Near here, the, the infantry were now digging themselves in, and as we arrived, one of their officers was having a slight wound dressed. The wound was situated in that region, admirably suited for youthful chastisement, and his breeches were down round his knees. We all laughed at the sight, and he smiled back at us good-humouredly. Why would he be good-humoured? Uh, talking about getting smacked on the bottom. I think you read that marvellously, by yeah, the way. Yeah, I just think that sometimes I've just got a knack for it. But yeah, he'd been shot in the arse, hadn't he? One delightful story indicates some of the resentment felt by frontline troops to those who served behind the lines. Now, that might not have been fair, but it was a natural reaction, especially in the aftermath of a battle. And this is Lance Corporal John Jackson of the 6th Cameron Highlanders. A Gordon Highlander who, making his way back wounded from the fight with bandaged head and arm in a sling, his kilt and hose all torn and bloody, came across a trooper of the mounted police standing in the shelter of the old church at Vermel. As the wounded man slowly made his way past, the MP, while he gazed at the wounds, the dirt and trickling blood of the kilty, said in a condescending manner, Some fight, Jock. Aye, said the Gordon, taking a cigarette from his lips as he eyed the other up and down from the red band on his hat to the polished boots and spurs on his feet. And some don't. <gasps> That's pretty sharp, isn't it? That's a cracking throw. Now, um, what, this next quote, eccentric, isn't it? And well, Why do I find this one so amusing? Well, because sometimes men were completely unaware to what had happened to their comrades in the press of the battle. And this next bit, it's a bit of an extreme case, but we it tickled our fancy, so to speak, didn't it? You are going to tell us what Private Bob Grimsdale, the 4th South African Infantry, says. And this, you know, bear in mind, this is when he's gone back home, uh, and this is supposedly a chum of his. Have you finished? I've finished. I regained consciousness to find myself among assorted dead bodies. He's been wounded, hasn't he? Including a German sergeant major wearing a tasseled sword bayonet. His helmet with the gold eagle was in good was in good condition, except for the bullet hole in the front. I don't know how long I've been lying there, and in my dazed state I tied helmet and bayonet onto me. 
I then crawled away from shell hole to shell hole. This urge to get souvenirs is unbelievable. A British soldier, one of the walking wounded, gave me a hand in finding a first field dressing station. At the end of the war, I returned to Johannesburg and looked up an old comrade. Has time passed there? I had grown a moustache and filled out a bit. We filled out a bit, haven't we? Uh, What's your name? He asked. This, this is his old comrade, isn't it? And 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 he, Bob Grimsdale. Surely you, you know that. Now look, said my old comrade. I'm sick and tired of you bums coming the old soldier trick and trying to make an easy quid. You just fuck off before I throw you out. It happens that I was next to Bob Grimsdale when he was killed at Delville. Delville Wood. So I just went, <laughs> left him. Our family joke, that was. Where were you in Delville Wood? <laughs> well, no, sorry, were you in Delville Wood? Reading's so difficult. <laughs> yes, I was killed there. Well done. Private Harold Haywood was wounded when acting as the Colonel's runner. In the scheme of things, his wound was not that serious, but for a young man, it was very worrying, and uh, it will become clear as to why. And this is Private Harold Haywood of the 12th Gloucestershire Regiment. A German left behind in one of their deep dugouts that hadn't been bombed had come up, seen the Colonel, and let fly. As soon as that happened... Uh, he walked on down towards our reserve lines and gave himself up as a prisoner of war. No one would have known. I was wounded in the scrotum. The bullet had come up off the ground and carried dirt with it, went through a cigarette tin and went through me. I was carried by Lieutenant Fitz to the dugout. I never lost consciousness. Lieutenant Fitz, he did put a, a field dressing on me and he reassured me that nature provides Two, like it provides two eyes. Well, now I'm a father. So where was he shot? I can't work it out. Oh, it doesn't say the location. But he had two of them, and they're to do with fatherhood. Mm. Well, it's all Greek to me. Now, Hayward was evacuated back to England and hospitalised. However, he became irritated by the persistent questioning by one of the female visitors, and his final retort um, is to be much treasured. And I'm going to go on as Private Harold Haywood. Where are you now? Lincoln General Hospital. In this ward, there was a lady from one of the county families who used to come once a week. She was rather nosy, wanted to know everything. Her first visit after I was there, she said, where was I wounded? Because, of course, she couldn't see any bandages. And I just pointed down under the bedclothes, hoping that would be sufficient. The next week she came, she said, where are you wounded? I knew what she was after and I said, Gulamod. It wasn't the particular place she wanted to know, but where the wound actually was, which being under the bedclothes, she couldn't see. Finally, the next week, she pointed and said, but where are you wounded? I was a bit fed up with this continual questioning. And so I said, Madam, if you'd been wounded where I've been wounded, you wouldn't have been wounded at all. All the rest of the fellows in the ward guffawed somewhat <laughs> loudly <laughs> and she stalked out of the ward not to come back again while I was there. That is just a fabulous... He was a great veteran. I remember interviewing him. Uh, now, um, but it's not funny, is it? The, the seriously wounded, they, they face life as a cripple. But this next quote just shows, just shows um, 
This is a quote from uh, Captain John Stanf- Staniforth, uh, and he's in uh, this time. He's been wounded himself, uh, and is he sorry for the uh, the uh, the people who are badly wounded? Or, 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 or no, he's got a bit of a pragmatic concern when he looks at them. And th- he was where was he? Uh, he was at the Fourth London General Hospital, uh, which I think was Ruskin Park. Well, this this next quote shows. I think he may have been easily distracted Staniforth, a bit like how easily distracted Pete. He says, one of the patients in this ward had an amputation yesterday. It occurred to me for the first time to wonder, as I sat and watched the sunset, what they do with the amputated arms and legs and things after the operation. Are they given to the cat or what? I wondered for an hour, but came to no conclusion. Blimey. Now, it's evident from all of this that the great war veterans had their own means of distracting themselves from the horrors that surrounded them. And that, that that's why, uh, that's a good way of finishing, I think, because that's the, uh, that's our theme for, for the book, for the podcast. How many have there been, Gary? A hundred? Felt like it. About 11, 10 or 11, I don't know. But uh, it's what we wanted to express in the book, isn't it? What did you want to express in the book, Gary? Milk. You wanted to express milk. <laughs> Now, as we mentioned earlier, the best way of supporting the podcast is, in fact, to buy the book, which is now more generally available. It's America, uh, It's available in America now. That's it's awesome. on Kindle now. You should have to. I mean, we can have one on Kindle and one real copy, which, you know, you could sort of put in a treasured place. I've got mine in a treasured place. I saw it in the latrines when I went for a slash. Uh, so don't forget, laugh or cry. The British Army on the Western Front, 1914-1918 by Peter Hart and Gary Bain. It's available now. We would really appreciate the support. And you'll get some more of the the material. Well, the, I mean, it's two or three chapters we haven't done podcasts on. But we've all, all of them have been much cut down. There's so much more to enjoy and to think about and possibly shed a tear about. And bear in mind, dear listener, that we've started work on the next podcast laugh or cry book have we yes we started work we What's might not called? finish uh and this one will be called chocks away so uh we'll we'll What's give you more about? detail about that once uh once Chocolate. we've actually done some work cheers cheers thanks for listening to the show blah, blah, blah. if you'd like to support blah, us blah, you can now buy us a coffee blah, blah, visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash pgmh or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah and we'd be jolly grateful cheers Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook and twitter accounts sounds great doesn't it